Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species Animal Activism on the Airwaves. This is a program dedicated to all sorts of animal issues, animal protection, conservation, appreciation, animal rights, the whole gamut of things to do with animal protection that are not covered in the mainstream media and you have to rely on 3CR for the points of view that aren't covered by all those rest of the uh, media outlets. And there are so many things regarding animal rights that are not covered. I know that uh, Melbourne Chicken Save, Melbourne Chicken Save, and Melbourne Pig Save were out in Burke Street Mall getting the word out to the public yesterday. I wasn't able to make it, but activists are out there doing this stuff every day, and uh, particularly with uh, Christmas season coming up, uh, it's good that the activists are getting out. And I ask any animal activists out there to really. Uh, do what they can to get the word out because there are so many animals that are going to die and suffer for the sake of uh, someone else's celebration this Christmas. And today's interview is going to actually be concerned with some of that because we're going to be talking to Josh Agland, an animal activist that used to be a slaughterhouse worker. I've got quite an interesting interview lined up with Josh that I did a few weeks ago. And we'll be going to that in a minute. We'll just go to a community announcement, and then we're going to return to that interview. Hi, it's Patty Mark from Animal Liberation Victoria on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 a.m. I love community radio. It's so important we keep an independent voice out there, not only for the animals, but for all humans, for the environment. And make sure you listen to Freedom of Species. It's animal activism on the airways. So I guess I um, fluffed my lines at the intro to the show. I'm sure the other team members will be messaging me in a moment saying that I didn't introduce myself. So my name's Roy Taylor, one of the presenters on the show, and you're listening to 855AM3CR. And Freedom of Species is animal activism on the airwaves. If you want to listen to previous podcasts, you can hear us on iTunes and also on the 3CR website. That's 3cr.org.au and our own website that's freedomofspecies.org so a few weeks ago in october i was at the animal activists forum on the gold coast very good uh, conference that was held with lots of amazing speakers and 
for once, I wasn't one of the organisers of that. Um, uh, Letitia Johnson has taken over as convener of that conference. And one of the most interesting talks was the talk by Josh Agland, who now does work with Animal Justice Party and works with uh, Mark Pearson in New South Wales. But he was talking his experiences as an actual slaughterhouse worker. How about we listen to what goes on in a slaughterhouse by talking to Josh and listening to his personal experiences. Hi, Josh. I saw you speak a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Animal Activist Forum on the Gold Coast. I thought your talk was really interesting. Could you share your background and uh, introduce what you talked about? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Josh Agland, and I currently work for the Animal Justice Party in, in Sydney. I work for Mark Pearson in his parliamentary office um, and been involved in animal rights, um, animal advocacy for nearly four years now. Uh, and so prior to that, I was uh, just an everyday sort of a person. And um, earlier on in my career, I I uh, was from a small town and I worked in a Australian beef slaughterhouse or cattle slaughterhouse uh, for three years. And so um, I was a, as a maintenance uh, engineer on the, on the kill floor and um, saw quite a bit. And it didn't turn me <laughs> vegan that didn't turn me vegan <laughs> uh, or turn me into those kinds of things, uh, animal rights or animal advocacy. And then, um, but slowly but surely I did and uh, got told that I should share my story and it should work and should reach out to people. And so I did. And then slowly but surely got more involved into thinking about how and why I worked there and, um, how I was when I was working there and my relationships with society and so on and so forth. And I thought it'd be an interesting talk or interesting topic to cover um, as far as animal activists are concerned so that we can capture why um, the killing business continues and it seems to hide in plain sight quite well. Um and the untold victims of that business, i.e. The, not just the animals, but the environment and the humans and the communities that they um, seem to embed themselves in. So, yeah, and that was kind of what my talk was about. Um, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not trained in any way. It was more just a personal explanation of what I've seen and what I felt and how it all came about. Uh, and hopefully it leads others with more experience and training to maybe dissect it a bit better. I actually makes it all the more interesting because it was your personal experiences. Presume that you never intended, uh, it wasn't your lifelong ambition to end up uh, seeing animals killed on the kill floor of a slaughterhouse. How did you end up there? No, obviously, no, it wasn't. Um, so I was in a sort of grew up in that part of, as a small town and, you know, as parents do when you finish school, go out and get a job or go out and do something with your life. And um, and so uh, for reasons untold, I decided that um, I didn't want to work as a slaughterman, which was kind of the way 
most kids went. You either got out of town or you worked in the in the abattoirs. Um, so I managed to get an apprenticeship as an as an electrician in the um, uh, in the abattoirs and sort of yeah worked my way uh, as an apprentice doing that. And um, yeah, it definitely uh, wasn't what I envisioned life being like. Um, in, in saying that, um, I didn't know much else was out there, so I couldn't really compare it to much else. Makes you uh, certainly makes me realise what big operations these are when they have uh, enough work to be done to not only employ uh, an electrician but also take it on apprentices. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was, I think, I was one of their first um, apprentices that they sort of took on. Previous to that, they weren't taking on apprentices, but they were growing. Um, and so, yeah, and then they were growing um, to the point where they were running 21 hours out of the day. Uh, so three hours, so it's a 24 hours, but three hours of that was sort of cleaning and whatnot. Um, but the operation was running 21 hours of the, of the day. And so they needed uh, more maintenance people to run the two shifts. And so that was why they expanded. Um, you know, primarily my job was to keep keep the chain, or you know, the the, the chain, the slaughter chain going, keep all the machinery going while people, while the the killing was going on, and um and then when times were shut down or, or on the weekends, and we would do some maintenance um, to the machinery, but so I covered all all the way from the pens, uh, the holding pens where they would come in. Um, all the way out to where the carcasses would go to the boning room and all the chillers uh, and all the way out to where the offal and whatnot would go to byproducts. So I covered quite a big area, a big expanse. How many people, do you know how many people this particular operation was employing? Oh, yeah, this was a pretty huge thing. I mean... Um, they owned like paddocks where they would hold the animals all around the areas and uh, probably two streets uh, around. So they would have houses for people out of the area that could live in there uh, and work. Um, I would say between uh, maybe 600 and 800 people, um, including, you know, sort of maintenance and, and all the other uh, slaughtermen and boners and, and, and everything else. Um, so it's quite large when you think about small towns and, you know, when when politicians talk about losing jobs, I mean, that's quite a lot of jobs um, in in the area. Absolutely, for a small country town. Yeah. Uh, 600 jobs, yeah, that is a lot. And you just briefly mentioned it in passing, uh, the chain. I'd like you to talk about the chain and uh, really what it means to work in that kind of system. The chain, I, I'm sure a few people are familiar with that term, is the uh, sort of the conveyor that takes the animals through the disassembly process, uh, as they would call it. And so um, it is the most important part of the facility. Um, it never stops as far as, well, it doesn't, it's not supposed to stop. And so it takes the animals from when they're knocked or when they're stunned and they're shackled and it takes them all around through all the different bits and processes that it goes through. Now, the one where I was working at uh, was between uh, 800 to 1,000 
um, individual cattle per day. Um, now that varied depending on supply and stuff, but if you took the largest number of a thousand uh, of a ten-hour shift, it's a hundred an hour. So the chain is moving quite quickly, and that is everyone's focus. Uh, that 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 doesn't stop. I mean, I was only talking the other day about my induction uh, to the job when I, you know, most people go through an induction process when they start a new job and, you know, through all the safety staff and, you know, this is that person. Mine was, okay, your job is that chain doesn't stop. <laughs> and that was my induction. And so um, that kind of tells you the importance uh, that, or the significance that the, the business model places on that um that one part of the process uh now it's 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 everything uh, that chain stops they're losing money uh, workers are standing around not doing anything they don't they lose money because they get money for extra kills and it's a really weird dynamic when you think about a workplace and um, that's the same dynamic that uh, goes on in car manufacture and other kind of industrialized production systems, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It's very, it's very similar, I'd imagine. Um, definitely. And so, I think the one maybe significant difference between killing and and, and uh, assembly things is the fact that you have a very limited time in order to do things uh, because you're taking an animal that is living. Uh, and turning it into a so-called edible product, uh, we all know once the once animal is dead, you know their their flesh starts to rot. So you don't have the amount of time, money other money aside, you don't have that time for the the, the chain to be stopped for any considerable amount of time. It's like everything is on, pardon the pun, the knife's edge. You know it really is. It's like we need to get this stuff done, and it needs to happen, and and otherwise. You know, uh, we're all going to lose money, and no company wants that. <laughs> so, what's the consequences for the animals coming in at one end? Yeah, so that's that's the big thing. In in essence, the consequences are that the animals are not seen as animals or living parts or living beings. They're they're seen as you know parts or cogs in the machine or components rather than to be assembled. They're ready to be de disassembled so you know not even animal welfare or, or pain or anything like that is going to stop the process of what is happening uh, sure if an animal is, is still alive at certain parts they'll do what they can to to stop the suffering but um, at the end of the day they're not going to stop that chain for it and somehow or other they put it in their minds that it's okay well, to let that go, we did what we could. We couldn't stop the chain, and it keeps on going. Uh, it also means that um, animals, as we know, are, are individuals. But this relies, this model relies on things to be like consistent square-shaped parts, like everything's a square, and it's all going to work and fit in and do all that. Animals are different sizes, different shapes, different breeds, different color. It, all that, all those kind of individual characteristics that make them individual beings gets thrown out the window and gets ignored and um, and that's just, that can result in uh, untold suffering um, to them in that process. With the pressure to keep the chain going and these living individuals coming at one end, what's the consequences of that system? Animals aren't stunned right. They're not 
stuck right, which means the process of sticking them and bleeding them, in which case they are still conscious and still alive at certain parts of the chain. I, I don't know what the speed of the chain is moving, but it's moving fast. So what is the process by which I think you worked in a beef slaughterhouse? A cow comes in. What is the process? Yeah. For 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 vegans that don't know, haven't watched the videos, mm. um, just what's the mechanics? <clears throat> what are, what are the machines? What's going on? Basically, though, they they all come in um, on those big trucks that you see, you might see or you might know of, uh, and they were held in sort of pens. They will get pushed through uh, a race. Um, usually or primarily by electric prodders, um, and they'll come through this race until it sort of singles them out into a, a single file um, nature. And so, they, and then there's gates that sort of stop, uh, that come in behind them as each as they go through, which means that you can only have sort of one cow going in at one at a time. This is the, I, I suppose, the hard part is that when people talk about, you know animals that are humanely raised um you know this is for them they're probably the most suffering for them because um a lot of those cows that have come off the mountains or the, the pastures have never i've never seen humans before There's essentially wild animals that have come into this industrial process uh they've never felt concrete under their feet before it's just you'd imagine it would be a quite a weird sensation for them and they kind of do this weird little dance thing on the on the concrete because they've never felt it before and they are suffering the most in this process because they're scared they've formed formed uh, you know <clears throat> herd like bonds with their other um herd members and and all that kind of stuff is ignored um and and so they'll be separated they'll want to try and be with their friends they'll be prodded back um then they'll be sort of slammed through this race which is just really loud and cumbersome um and as they come through this the top of the race they they come into the the last the, the last area and it's what we termed the knocking box so they come in to this knocking box um and it's <clears throat> like this mechanical restraint device kind of puts their body in a position and their head in a position so uh, the slaughterman, we used to call the knocker, um, will put a bolt through their head. Uh, that That's like usually from a charge. Some of them are pneumatic, but our one was a, from a charged um, gun. And it's a 12-millimeter bolt, and it will go through their skull. Now, that's generally will kill them or uh, for the most part. Um but as you know, as I was saying before, there's different animals, different skull thicknesses, different, all that kind of stuff. And um, it's not really meant to accommodate that inconsistency. So you get those big bulls or those big steers will come through. Their heads are quite solid. It'll look like they knock them, but it won't, it won't knock them. They'll wake back up. Um, so essentially they'll come through the knocking box. The knocker will knock them put a bolt through their head, they'll roll out into what they call this cr a, a cradle, which uh, is where they're shackled from the back leg at one end, and there's a guy at another end who uh, rubs the corner of the eye, and that's supposed to check if they're conscious or not. Um, you know, that's not really done uh, that often. 
Um, depends how diligent they want to do that. Um, and then they'll be shackled up. That's where they connect to the chain for the first time. I'm just going to stop you there. Yeah. Um, just so I understand. So after the uh, the cap, it's it's a captive bolt, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. It's a it's not like a a gun that fires something. It it, it it's a bolt that go, can go in a, a twelve millimeters. Yes. Yeah. So it's a twelve millimeter diameter retractable bolt. It's captive, so it, it gets fired into the skull, into the center of the skull, right between the eyes, supposedly, and um, it penetrates. It's supposed to kill off the brain. And then it retracts back into the device. Uh, all that happens in, you know, a half a second. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, once it's in the cradle, the, there's a guy that, did you say, touches the side of their eyes, or that's, in theory, his role? Yes. So, in theory, his role is to, he's got two, two things to do. Um, check the cows alive, and he's also got to plug the, the, the stomach. So... Um, and they do that with a big, uh, long shaft that they push down their throat to plug the stomach so that, you know, when they're dying, they're not vomiting everything. That takes precedence over checking the eye. Um, so he only has enough time to check the eye and do all that before that shackle. has got the shackle on the back leg and is already lifting it up onto the chain. Um, you know, it's a pretty fast process. You're talking about... Two seconds, maybe three seconds. I'd never heard of uh, the uh, the plugging. Can you explain that? I, I... Yeah, yeah. So what they do is it's like a it's like a plastic um, cork, <clears throat> and they they push it down through the mouth into the throat, and they plug the top of the stomach. I'd imagine. Um, and so that is so when further down the line. Um, the the stomach is released or the, all the muscles in the throat or whatever is released because they're dead, that anything that they've consumed doesn't come out as puke or vomit and taint the, the meat. So they do try to not feed them. I think it's like a day for a whole day beforehand. Sometimes it's longer, so they've got empty stomachs. But depending on how quick they want to put them through, they might come straight from the truck on and straight into the slaughter, onto the kill floor. So that means they might have something in their stomach. Um, so they, that's what they do that for. Um, so the, the, essentially the, the vomit doesn't taint the meat. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And 3CR is the station that will broadcast things too unpalatable for the mainstream media. You're listening to an interview with Josh Agland, animal rights activist and former slaughterhouse worker, as he describes just what happens to those animals that some people choose to eat. So hmm. then we've got um, something being tied to the back legs, yeah? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a steel chain or a shackle, um, and that will pull up the hind leg, and that gets lifted up, and they go up, and then they connect onto the chain, and by that time, they're hanging inverted. Um, probably, their heads are probably maybe, I'd say, a metre off the ground. And they come into what we call the sticking area. And that is where the 
person who is the what we termed the sticker, um, slices the throat throat <clears throat> in a downward fashion. So he will stab the throat. If you imagine a cow hanging up inverted, um, the top of the sternum, uh, and slice all the way down to the chin, and then push his arm up into the cavity, all the way up essentially to the shoulder. Uh, so he's got his whole arm inside uh, the cow, and he will stab the heart uh, or cut the arteries of the heart. And so then, because the animal is essentially not dead, it's unconscious, the heart is still ble- beating, it will pump all the blood out of the animal. Uh, and that's the sticking or the bleeding process. Um, and so <laughs> a lot of cattle that aren't, properly stunned will go through that process of life um essentially though if that sticking process is done right not many animals can survive not long after that um because they lose a whole lot of blood so when he does that it's like turning on a hose of blood it'll just come rushing gushing out of their out of their chest and then they go on down further down the chain he's done his job so, some cows will still be conscious um, at that sticking process. 100%, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know how many, if you took in a 1,000 a day, what the, the ratio would be, but the sticking, the sticker and the shackler, uh, the two, one of the two main dangerous jobs. Um, so, the shackler is because many cows, even the ones that are dead are still kicking because of the senses so he's in a dangerous position uh and the sticker you know if he's got a live cow hanging upside down it's trying to ride itself up it's swinging its head around it's kicking it's jumping it's doing all those things he's somehow going to get get into there uh and slice the cow open and get up inside of its insides and stab its heart while all that's happening, while the chain's moving. Uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous job. It's a dangerous place to be. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's it's not the prettiest, you know, thing you'd ever see, uh, regardless of whether the animal's unconscious or not. It's, it's pretty bad. Is this... Now, I know the term the chain is, is a metaphor for the process, but... At this point, it is literally hanging on a chain. Uh, is that cow moving along? Is this guy sticking it, uh, using this knife to stick it in the heart? Is he having to walk alongside it and do this while, while this thing's all moving? It sounds so dangerous. Yes, yes. So as soon as it gets shackled onto that chain at the, from the shackler, it's moving. And so it's imperative for him to walk across as soon as it's shackled up, maybe even as it's being shackled up, depending on how he's gone with the, the cow before, to start sticking it. Um, because he uh, has got a process which can take a lot of time. It's extremely dangerous. It's it's the most highest critical welfare point, I would imagine, for the animal. Um, and, it, and like I said, yeah, the chain is moving. So he'll stab it, he'll slash it, he'll... The up inside the cattle cow trying to stab its heart while he's walking along. 
Um, yeah, it only takes two or three slow ones or ones that he has trouble with before he's got a backlog. And he only has a certain uh, amount of room to stick it before it moves on to the next process. So he's got about, I'd say, about eight metres. If he hasn't done it within that eight metres, technically you should stop the chain and go and do it. Uh, in theory or in practice, they won't. So if he hasn't done the sticking properly or at all within that first eight metres, um, it's going down the chain. That's That's how it works. How does someone on the chain stop the chain? Is there some kind of a switch they can pull or something like that? Yeah, so at different parts, not everywhere, um, different stations, workstations, there's uh, there's buttons that they can press. Now there's a button that will stop the chain completely, and there's also a button that will pause a section of the chain. Um, you know, so they can hit those buttons, um, but usually, well... Where those buttons are, there's lights connected to those buttons. So if they hit a stop button, for instance, stops the chain. Everyone obviously knows that the chain stopped, but there's a red light that will flash above the button. Um, and so everyone in that kill floor, workers, foremen, managers, then immediately look around and go, up oh, flashing red light, that's where they've stopped the chain. Why have you stopped the chain? So everyone sort of runs over and goes, what the hell is going on, whatever else. So it's, you know, while there's a mechanism there to stop the chain, uh, you know, the the motive to do it or the, uh, the pressure to do it um, or the pressure not to press it outweighs the pressure to press it, uh, if, you, if that makes sense. Um, you're not a popular person if you stop that chain and the red light is flashing above your head. Uh, it's you're not a popular person, that's for sure. You've got a lot of people who are going to be losing money in their pay packet, yeah? Definitely. Money, losing losing money, may have to work back. Uh, if you've got a kill quota, kill quota of, say, 900 animals and you've stopped the chain and you've missed, say, 50 animals, um, those 50 animals you're going to do for free. You're not going to pay... They're not going to pay you overtime because somebody stopped the chain. So... Or they'll speed the chain up to get the next 50 to catch up to where they are. So you are not a popular person because you either make them work back, you make them lose money, or you make them work harder. Uh, it's, it is, I've seen the chain stopped in my three years probably maybe four or five times in total. Um, generally, the, the chain really only stops if there's a failure, like a mechanical or an electrical failure. And that's that's what my job was, uh, and it was all, <laughs> all you know, feet on the deck to try and get it back going again. The pressure on you to get that fixed must have been high. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the supervisors aren't the nicest people in the world when it comes to that, um, and so they'll sort of linger around you. What's going on? When's it going to be fixed? How long? Da 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 da. And um, you know, they'll always remind you, mate, oh, I've got 600, you know, I've got 600 blokes standing here. I've got, you know, I'm losing 200 grand an hour. Well, every time an hour that you're not doing here is 200 grand. And then it's kind of like, again, when you go back to the automotive model, it's almost like a just-in-time process. As cattle are being killed and going out, there's cattle being trucked in. If you stop the cattle going out, 
you're going to get a build-up of cattle coming in uh, to the point where you'll have trucks lined out out on the street with cows stuck in them because they can't unload them. Um, so it go it it affects everybody. Uh, it affects truck drivers. It affects people on the street. It affects everything. It's just central around this thing going all the time. Um, so yeah, the pressure is always high to get them going. Um, if something was, you know, electrically broken or mechanically broken, you did whatever patch up job you could get it to go to the end of the shift, and then you would fix it. Um, and that's kind of how you got out of it. <laughs> wow, the pressure uh, sounds pretty grim. Uh, we are going to ask you to go back to the kill floor now. Well, you've talked about the sticker, um, the guy with the knife striking it into the heart of the cow. Now, you mentioned that he's having to do this walking along his area. How many people are in that area? I imagine... I'm now imagining the blood, the noise. It sounds, uh, the image I have in my mind, it just, if nothing else, it sounds so dangerous. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely it is. I mean, so you got that sticking area and then they will, they'll come up and, you know, it's very, very quickly that they're starting the process of, of dismantling the, the animal um, from the sticker You've got uh, two or three people there that um, are then walking along, and all their job is is to go up inside the animal with these long sort of metal hooks and trying to keep pulling out bits and pieces or stabbing at that heart to keep getting the blood out. And so that's their job. Um, and then as that's going up, you're already moving to an area now where uh, there's a guy that will, his job is to cut the, the front feet off, the hoofs off, hoofs, and, um, and also the horns, if they've got any horns, and he also will cut the ears off with the ear tags. So he's, so there's two guys, and they've got, like, that's sort of really, really critical. They have this big pneumatic blade that sort of, it will Let's imagine what those fireys use to cut car doors open. That's essentially what it is. Um, and so they quickly cuts one foot off, quickly cuts another foot off, does the two horns, um, and then gets his knife out, cuts the ears off. It's moving around. As he's doing that, you're now entering what they, the two, two levels. So you will have an upper level and a lower level. And this is where you've got people working on the head, front feet area. At the same time as you've got people above them working on the cutting the tail, the genitals out, the udders off, if there's udders, uh, cutting the back feet off, uh, starting the skinning process for the hide puller. Uh, and that's all like a two-tiered process. So that's all moving along. Um, those guys are so working so close together that they don't walk along with the cow, uh, with, the, with the chain. Um, they've just got one particular task to do and they've got to do it. Um, and so one guy, he, all his job is to do is to cut the tail off and cut and cut the anus out and that's all he does. Quickly, again, it moves on. Guy got to cut the udder or cut the genitals off. Next guy, 
he starts splitting the hide on the back legs. Next guy comes along, he's going to take the whole hide off the back end, ready for the hide puller, and then it sort of comes around that process. Um, and then you've got the hide puller, which is a, which is the slowest part of the, the whole chain process and the whole process, because it's quite an involved machine. Um, and they wrap the part of the hide that's sort of been peeled off the back, and they'll wrap it around with chains. Um, and as they pull, it starts from the top. As it comes down, a travelling platform comes down. It's rolling the hide onto a drum, and there's two guys that are kind of hacking at any tissue or flesh or fat that's kind of holding it sticking it on and making the machine get stuck and then it will pull the hide up over the top of the animal's head and just rips it off with you know really really violent looking machine to be honest so um so really that that's a that's a slow part of the chain and that's usually where it transitions from what they call the dirty side to the clean side so the dirty side is where the hide on area is it's, it's pretty much a, a recognisable animal. After it gets the hide taken off, it's got to enter the clean area because anything from then on can contaminate the meat, uh, which makes them lose money. So that's that's the crucial sort of section of the chain. You've got the knocking box, the hide puller. They're two really crucial parts. You're listening to Freedom of Species, Animal Activism on the Airwaves on 3CR Community Radio. The mainstream media doesn't broadcast stuff like this. This is an interview with Josh Agland, animal rights activist and former slaughterhouse worker, talking about his experiences working in a New South Wales slaughterhouse. We'll go back to that interview now. From an animal welfare point of view, what is the best that we could hope for in that process for the animal? Um, the best is that the animal is knocked completely correctly um, and is ensured 100% that the animal is unconscious um, prior to being shackled um, and going through the process. Uh, and then also the sticking process is is critical. So even if you've got the ideal situation, the animal is unconscious, but you want to make sure the sticking or the blooding process is done right because that is essentially what kills the animal. The knock gun is is really only knocks them out. It's, it makes them unconscious. Uh, quickly as you can be knocked unconscious, you could be you could regain consciousness again. So it is important that you're not completely unconscious and that you, that the animal is stuck and bled out correctly and properly. Um, that ensures the animal is killed, uh, is knocked unconscious and killed without feeling any physical pain. Um, the emotional and, uh, you know, uh, psychological suffering that the animal goes through in that process in the process beforehand in an ideal world it would be slower it would be quieter um, and you know I suppose done in a way that um, 
acknowledges the animal for being a living being, not a, a component or a part in a process. Yeah. And the next question, obviously, what's the worst thing that could happen? Worst things could happen uh, is the animal is still sensible to pain and still conscious uh, right up to the hide puller. Uh, essentially, that means you're they're skinning a cow mechanically in a violent process while still sensible to pain. Um, they've then prior to that had their legs cut off. They've had their horns cut off. They've had their genitals and their anus removed, their tail cut off. They've had their bum area, the rump area skinned with knives. And then they've been violently skinned, uh, or dehydrated with a machine process. And then, just after that, that's when they cut their head off. So the worst case scenario is it can a cow can be still conscious uh, and sensible to pain and suffering at that hide puller. Has, have you ever seen that happen? Um, I have, once. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, I, I have seen uh, a steer get to that point and still be uh, making noises and still trying to lift its head. Um, they are the two uh, undeniable um, signs that the animal is still conscious and alive. You know, uh, you can still get muscle twitching and kicking when the animal's dead, but if an animal is trying to right itself up, move its head up, it is making noises and bellowing noises, it's alive. And, um, yeah, I, I, I did see that once. Um, still remember remember it vividly to this, to this day. Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget it. Um, and that was one of the things, uh, even back then, that I felt sick to my stomach. And uh, it's like I felt white as a ghost when I seen it and you know the guys working around it were the same they knew what was going on um, and I think secretly they just wished it wasn't happening and it was just going to end really quickly and um, you know they, I remember reporting it to the to the, to the vets on site vets and um, they don't want to know anything about it they just say, no, 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 that didn't happen. You can't prove it. It's just nerves. It's just twitching. It's just whatever else. Um, and so it's all washed under the carpet, under the rug. Um, I can't say that was once out of three years. So I, I would say that it's it's rare. Um, but even one is <laughs> one way too many. And you are seeing many animals die every day. How many animals do you see die every day? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I would see, <clears throat> if I was on the kill floor for the majority of the day, uh, you know, up to 500 animals a day die, um, get processed through. Um, 
then on top of that you're seeing uh, more cows get loaded up uh, a lot of them get well, some of them do injure themselves out in the pens um, and so that was part of a sometimes our job we would have to go out and um, you know supervise a in-situ kill of an animal uh, out in the pens and what they would call a downer animal which meant that it was uh, broken a leg or it couldn't get up it couldn't be roused up to go through the, the kill floor so they kill it where it lied um, yeah it was just constant death you know you can't explain it any other way than uh, constant death the smell the sounds all your senses is just it's just death if you entered a kill floor you would be amazed at not just the sight of what you're seeing but the smell uh, the sound of it the the, the heat, the temperature of it all, you know, you're taking live, beautiful animals and you're, and you're killing them, the heat that radiates off them, all that stuff. It's um, things that people don't think about uh, when they're, you know, in the butcher shop or in the meat section of Coles, I suppose. What's the effect on the workers? Yeah, so the effect is uh, is, is huge. It's uh, And I think it's hasn't been thought about or measured before. Uh you talked about the pressure of what the workers are under uh, to keep that chain going. And then you've also got uh, the pressure of killing, taking lives uh, of, of living beings every single day. And then you've got, even if you're not in that killing process at the start, you are still dismantling what was once a beautiful living creature. Uh, you have pressures of normal pressures that we have in our jobs, putting food on the table, paying the mortgage, um, all those things, raising kids. Then you have the pressures of turning up to this kind of job. Then you have on top of that any pressures of how you feel about that uh, is not acknowledged. It's a very testosterone-driven industry. It's sort of a male-dominated machoism. Uh, People don't talk about feelings. Um, people definitely don't like to talk about their job and how they feel about what they're doing. Um, and so, and even worse, in a small community, you don't want to question the norm. You don't want to question an industry that employs that whole town, that sponsors the local footy team, that puts a new playground in the local park. All those corporate propaganda you don't want to question any of that because you're going to not just put yourself out of a job but you might potentially put others out of jobs um and so this this mounting pressure on people um people often with little education people that don't have confidence to move out of a town they may have grown up in um people that don't know any different salt of the earth kind of people that would give the shirt off your back, but at the same time uh, go to work and, and, and kill untold amount, amounts of animals. Um, I don't think it's been measured before. I don't think it's been thought of. Uh, I know in the States I've read some studies where they have shown high levels of substance abuse, domestic violence, 
in communities that are based around slaughterhouses. Uh, I can tell you right now where I lived, the local pub was the go-to place, um, as is the Australian way, but, you know, uh, it was the place where I think a lot of guys washed away what they were doing. Um, and then you've also got this idea that if you hate what you do and you hate what it is, how do you get out of it? And then on top of that, then how do you stop your children following that path um, if they want to? Uh, it's it's untold. It's uh, I think definitely one of those things that will come back to haunt us as a society of how we've done that, uh, treated people and how we've pushed the business of killing um away from society's eyes to a sense and we've enslaved people to do a job that 95 percent of the population would shudder to think of what is done to get their meat on the table um and yeah so it'd be interesting to see uh, if anything comes of that in australia studies of those kinds of things um just recently as in yesterday i was participating in a in a program with uh, a group called in defense of animals uh in the in the states who are trying to set up the very first worldwide well in the world first uh slaughterhouse worker support line run by animal vegan activists that is insane and i think that is just so awesome um purely because over there they're starting to recognize that the workers are victims just as much as the animals in a sense and if we're going to stop this business of killing we have to um, provide the people that are enslaved in it um, support we have to provide them with other meaningful jobs and ways to earn an income and we have to bring them with us we cannot fight against them. Um, and so I think that's a really exciting thing over there um, and maybe something that it might turn out, it might roll out to further places. don't know. Interesting project. I've not heard of that before. Yeah, it's just it's still just getting off the ground and it's been instigated by um, uh, Anita who was also talking from Toronto Big Save, uh, and I loved her talk, and I love Anita, I think she's awesome, um, because of her doing all her regular vigils at these slaughterhouses, they've become to know the workers. They do weekly vigils at these places, so they've become to know these workers on a first-name basis, and they've built up rapport and relationships with them, and they've seen, wow, these people aren't evil devils. They're just... For the most part, they're just people happen to be doing a job that no one else really wants to do and no one else wants to think about happens, uh, and they're doing it just to survive. And so she's seen that um, there's this grey area where they haven't tackled. Why are we not um, supporting these people? Why are we not helping them? If we help them and if we support them and we bring them through will there not be more exposures of what goes on inside slaughterhouses? No doubt there will be. Um, 
those glass, uh, those walls will start to be teared down because people will start to feel supported and they won't be fear of being demonized by people as animal abusers or people that are psychopathic, you know, killers or anything like that. Um, and it will just start to, like I said, bring them with us rather than fight against them. Following how that project goes, uh, I think that's going to be very interesting. I think, uh, are you going to be involved in that in the long term? Uh, yeah, look, I, I don't know how much. Um, I've offered to help them with, um, you know, role playing and, and how people would feel, uh, like, you know, and what the workers might experience and how they might feel when they're being, what things they might seek to get support for. Um, it's 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 a unique one where they're, where they're doing it in Toronto because uh, over there the, the slaughterhouses are and not at this stage being pushed out to the small rural communities. They're kind of in the suburban areas, which is quite interesting. Um, and so they have this chance that that um, they can get these people other jobs and um, they can help them. There's more support services there. Um, I think it'll be a bit, it'd be a bit of a hurdle doing it with rural areas and areas where there's less jobs. Uh, less opportunities services but um they're making a step and they've they've uh yeah they're, they're breaking down barriers which i think is is really really um commendable well josh thanks for your time we're gonna have to wrap up there i yeah. think we'll uh do a follow-up on that project either with yourself or with anita down the line yeah definitely uh yeah for sure um as it comes online and gets updated and occurs uh i think it'd be something to follow definitely thanks very much for having me so if people would like to contact you um maybe to um learn more about this or if you could um help me in some way could you give out some contact details? Yes. So uh, if people want to get get a hold of me, um, you can get a hold of me on my personal email, which is probably the best one, which is Josh Agland, A-G-L-A-N-D, at hotmail.com. Uh, and that's probably the best way to, to get a hold of me. Ask me any questions, um, and we can go from there. That's great. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. You're listening to Freedom of Species, Animal Activism on the Airwaves on 3CR 855 AM. That was an interview that I conducted with Josh Agland, former slaughterhouse worker, talking about his experiences. The uh, That interview brings us really to the end of the show. We're running out of time, and up next is the Encyclopedia team. So we'll hand over to them. We'll go out with some music. This is the Tea Party an animal-themed one, this is The Badger. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.